The following is a rebroadcast of an episode of Talking Radical Radio originally broadcast in September 2019. My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Tiffany Joseph. It is hard to exaggerate the extent to which the realities of colonialism and resistance to it have been erased from mainstream understandings of Canada and of North America more broadly. Thankfully, struggles by indigenous people have done important work to challenge that erasure, and the realities of past and present colonization, dispossession, and genocide, as well as indigenous resistance, are more widely understood than a generation ago. But still, dominant institutions, and the most common imaginings of this place by those of us who are settlers, still have a long way to go. One consequence of this relative disconnection that most settlers have from our history is that when we do begin to learn some of it, it can be easy to pick up the broad strokes words for what has gone on, but to miss how that has translated into the lives of individuals, families, and communities. Words like colonization and genocide contain within them many, many stories of real people's experiences of hurt, theft, trauma, and disruption of safety, culture, and language. And they also contain countless stories of indigenous strength, dignity, and survival. And this shallow understanding we often develop of what has happened and what is happening now often further results in a very poor sense of what needs to be done. Of course, what needs to be done looks like a lot of different things, and indigenous people struggle against the ongoing impacts of colonization and genocide in many different ways. But in part, it can look like slow, steady work by individuals, families, and communities to undo harm, to defend and restore the land, and to revitalize language and culture. It is some of these kinds of work that Tiffany Joseph is going to talk about on today's episode. Joseph's ancestry is of the Husaitnich people on her mother's side and the Sakwotmich people on her father's side, and please pardon my pronunciation. She currently lives in Sartlet First Nation, a bit north of Victoria on Vancouver Island. She had opportunities to be in her culture from her father's side growing up, including learning some of the Squamish language between preschool and grade 10. In fact, her grandmother, one of only a dozen fluent speakers of the language left at that time, was one of her preschool teachers, and it was her grandmother's example that inspired her to take the path that she has taken. As an adult, she's had a chance to begin learning the Sanchosan language, her language from her mother's side. And her work today is focused on doing land restoration and on culture and language revitalization work in her community. I speak with Joseph about some of her people's history and about her work revitalizing her language and culture and restoring the land. Uh, Yet Willie Joseph to Nitsa Sila La Nisquesta Shuk Nakana Nisat uh Astichawate Yet Nikelo Siet 
uh, I have that in Tower Sit to the Starless. Silla is in that it's a Coast Salish way of acknowledging people as respected people. My Sinchata name is Cholafowit. My English name is Tiffany Joseph. And I name my parents and grandparents and my children and myself, but I'll save that in English right now. My ancestry is Kusetnich through my mother, we're the saltwater people, and Kholtvish through my father, we're the freshwater people. My mother's mother is Owitsin, also known as Cowichan. And I live in Kujasas, anglicized as Sartle First Nation. And if you were to look up Sartle First Nation on a map, you would find us in a place known as Brentwood Bay, which is halfway between the BC Ferries and Swartz Bay and the city of Victoria on the Saanich Peninsula. I grew up on Kumalchitin, known in English as Capilano Reserve, which is basically right on the border between North and West Vancouver. And I work in Smeetquest. Smeetquest translates as Place of Blue Grouse. If you were to look it up on Google Maps, it's known as Todd Inlet or Gallon Todd Provincial Park. And it's the first village of my Kusetnich people. And I do land restoration work and education there. From a very young age, I attended funerals, which is where a lot of our cultural teachings are shared. It includes our funeral practices, but it also shares a lot of our teachings and beliefs. So I was raised in the culture in that way. And also from preschool up to grade 10, I learned Skoltmish, Snaching, Squamish language. And my grandmother and my auntie were two of my preschool teachers. My grandma, it was told to me a lot in my young life that she was one of 12 fluent speakers left of Squamish language, Squamish Nation. And so I really felt this strong need and pull to contribute and make sure that all the work that she had done throughout her life as a preschool teacher and when she quote unquote retired from being a preschool teacher and working with our community and with different universities that she wouldn't have put all that work and not have anyone to pick that up. There's lots of people in our community who are doing that, but I felt like it was really important for me as her granddaughter to really be involved in that. One thing that's really important that I learned from my grandma is that when people talk about Indigenous languages, they refer to our language and our culture as dying or endangered or at risk of extinction and she felt it was not appropriate and not in alignment with our way of seeing the world, of our ancestors' way of seeing the world. She said, never speak of the language as if it's dying, because then you'll speak that into reality, essentially. So she would always say, our language is just asleep and waiting for our people to wake it up again. Because she said, it'll never die. It's never dead. It's always within you, within the land and the territory. So I only learned Squamish language up to grade 10. And then my cousin, he started doing a mentor apprenticeship with one of our language teachers. And he would ask me if like, I'd want to do this language learning method. So we tried it and I picked it up really well. And so we'd have language nights. So that was around 2009 or so. I had a son at that point. He was born in 2007. 
I really wanted to be able to teach my son and sing to my son because I sing to him like nursery rhymes in English and I really wanted to be able to sing them to him in Squamish, Squamish language. I wasn't able to gain my fluency at that point. We're really just trying to find adequate and appropriate housing and also adequate employment. So I didn't really get to take up that mentor apprenticeship program like my cousin did, but you know, I would have that involvement just by our relationship. And in 2015, the State School Board and the University of Victoria formed a partnership program called Kristin East. And it's a two-year program where students could get a diploma in Indigenous language revitalization. That's when I started learning Sinchasan language. Basically, it's like everyday learning Sinchasan and learning about our history and things like that. That's when I became really more fluent as an Indigenous language speaker because my Kholtmish background, I've learned a lot of things, but I wasn't really conversational level, but I can have a certain amount of conversation in Sinchasan. And I do my best to teach about Indigenous plants in particular, and also caretaking of land. And I'm also a certified pollinator steward. Talk a bit about the historical context that makes it necessary to be doing cultural and language revitalization work. My grandparents went to residential school. My grandfather, when he was in residential school, he recognized that they weren't teaching him anything that was going to be useful. They weren't even teaching him literacy and math appropriately. And so he removed himself from the residential school. He learned a lot of different trades, I guess you could say. He was a boat builder. He was a fisherman. And I think he was 17 when he enlisted himself with the army so that he could fight in World War II. So in residential school, of course, he was punished for speaking Sinchasan. And when he joined the army, he lost his Indian status, which there's many impacts, but in terms of treatment from the army, what I understand from my family is that people, when they fought in World War II, they had the opportunity to own some land, but they did not give that opportunity to my grandfather. So even though he lost his status, he also did not gain any benefits that were afforded to other quote-unquote Canadians. And he did not get very much support from the army at that time. But he worked really hard on his boat as a fisherman with my grandmother to be able to afford to buy some land. And it is on our sale reserve. He raised 15 children, including my mother, with my grandmother. Because of the things that he faced, not only in residential school, but also in the Canadian society, he and my grandma did not pass on their language to my mother and her generation. And his, I believe it was his grandfather, was a boat builder. So, you know, he was a boat builder and not a canoe builder. So already going back to my great-grandmother's decision to marry a boat builder so that her son and grandson could learn boat building skills, they learned boat building skills instead of canoe building skills. But there are some things that he managed to carry on with this interruption of our cultural practices of relating to the land and the sea. But he maintained what he was able to with all of this systemic oppression of us continuing on our culture. 
I hope people know about the potlatch ban. Our ceremonies would have been places we learned about all the different caretakers of land because I think in the English-speaking colonial society, it's very human-centric and people make decisions and manage land in ways where they think about how they use the land and how they own the land and they're the only ones who have any influence on the land. But the way I see the world and taking care of land is that, for example, the bees are caretakers of land and, you know, salmon and all the marine life, all the forest life, all the beings who live in the meadows, they're all contributing to taking care of the land. And it's our job to recognize when things are in balance and out of balance. And that's where we as human beings can step in. Our worldview creates space and a structure where understanding the well-being of all beings and not just human beings is important for the well-being of our our territory, our homelands. And our homelands are the homes of all the animals in the air, on the land, in the waterways, and also all the plants. And so we're responsible to all of those beings. There's just been an aggressive effort when the Canadian government was establishing itself to take away our control over the land. So here in Kusetnich, for example, we adapted. We did everything to adapt. The first biggest thing that our people faced was the disease of the colonizers. They had many diseases that really impacted our population. Many thousands of our people died. And then also the people that we met were just drastically different from us. So, you know, even the concept of honesty is not something that the people who arrived here had. So one of the places they arrived is around Cordova Bay. One of the first things those people did was set a forest on fire so that they could like set up a camp. And then we had two chiefs show up there to check in and see what was going on. And then the people ran away. It was like a whole camp full of people. And then they see two men on a canoe and they run away afraid for themselves. It could be an indication of their own guilt and the fact that they were doing something wrong and they knew it. If it's only two people approaching, you imagine they're there to speak in a civilized and negotiating kind of way, but these people ran away in fear. So they knew what they were doing was not right. And then on my Kholtmish side, when they were establishing Kitsilano, they deemed my people, my ancestors, and my great-grandfather was there, they deemed them as people who would bring down the cost of the land And so they put our people on a barge and removed them from that village. They gave people money, but they're like, we don't want to take this money. We want to stay here. And they said, you bring down the value of this land. Well, interestingly enough, the value of that land is even there because of how we took care of the land. And when they were establishing the city of Vancouver, they cut down our ancient cedars and blockaded us out of the city so that We could not enter their quote-unquote city that they were forming. We really revered cedar because it provided us homes, provided us clothing, it provided us medicine. So when they would do things like that to us, it was because they recognized how much we revered the cedar tree. So, you know, these are hurtful and violent actions and manipulative and aggressive. And yet we did everything to try and adapt and help basically communicate 
in a way that these early settlers would understand. So in Hsetnich, the whole Sandwich Peninsula, our chiefs put up a fence. We didn't have fences before, but our late elders understood, okay, this is something these people understand. Let's put up a fence and say, this is our territory. This is the land we're going to take care of. We're going to hunt here, fish here, live here. You people can continue in your Fort Victoria. But they gradually, over time, would just take over more and more land. So there's a lot of dishonesty in the approach of settling the land. What I hope to do is speak about these truths, because if we don't talk about them, we can't understand the harm that has caused my people. People can't understand how we do not trust a lot of people. Salish people often are recognized as being very private people. And it's for a reason. So sharing this history is like, every time we tried to build relationships of trust, it was broken. Our entire way of seeing the world is only take what you need. We get this colonial view put on us of, oh, you're going to do too much damage. But that's because the colonial way of engaging and relating to the world is all about doing too much damage. Our way of engaging with the world and relating to the world is making sure we don't take too much. We know where we belong and we know there's places we don't belong and we do not have the right to go into that place. It could be a land that we don't belong to. It could be a ceremony we don't belong to. We understand that and we don't take offense to that. But in the colonial world, when people hear they're not allowed to go somewhere, they take that as an offense and they want to destroy other people from stopping them from going somewhere where they don't belong. What are some of the key approaches for you for doing this language and cultural revitalization work? I would say the key approaches is taking that honesty approach, but also an inclusivity approach. The way I was raised is just seeing everyone as equal on both sides of my family. It's about seeing everyone as equal. You're never better than another person. Making people feel safe is really important. And it needs to be a balance of being able to talk about difficult truths, but also making people feel safe and like they belong. But what I recognize is that in that inclusion, without giving that strong background of understanding our laws and our approaches and what the consequences are, not just for a social consequence, but consequences for the land or our ceremonies, if our rules and laws aren't followed, then it's hard to maintain the harmony needed and also the respect of our bloodline family. I feel like there's a lot of ways that we can share our culture. And I try to imagine that all the time. I'm like, if the first people who came here weren't liars and thieves and rapists, how would we be able to relate? Because, of course, not all early settlers were liars, thieves, and rapists. So how would we relate to these people if we were dealing with the honest people, the relationship-building people, the respectful people, the people who can be given the idea that you're not welcome into this part of our culture because you're not born into this, but you're a guest here and you're welcome to all these other parts of our culture, you know? So what I do is no matter what I'm teaching in, I will get everyone to introduce themselves, say their full name, their parents' full names, and their grandparents' full names. So I get people to share their family history. 
on the one hand, in terms of our day-to-day interaction, we treat everyone like family. And in our languages, in Kholtmish, we say, see, I, my cousin told me that my grandma said to him, see, I was like a word that you would say for somebody who you don't know how you're related yet. And there's the common term that people know is like all my relations. So I also emphasize it's not about just all my relations as human beings. It's all my relations of the animals and the spirits and the water and everything that exists on the planet of Earth. So in our day-to-day lives, creating relationships where we feel like family is important. In our ceremonies, you have to know your family line because your family line gives you birthrights to different ceremonies. Even if your day-to-day life, a part of this family, if your bloodline doesn't connect to a certain ceremony, you don't have the right to do certain aspects of that ceremony. Those boundaries, those ways of knowing where everyone is made to feel like they belong, it's really a lot harder to lie, manipulate, and hurt another person if there's somebody you really feel a sense of belonging with. I emphasize sense of belonging because You can have family and you have no problem crossing those boundaries. But if you feel like you belong with them, you're not going to want to be dishonest towards them. And another thing I teach is that colonization, it started before it arrived here. A simple way of defining what colonization is, is that it's really about breaking the connection of human beings to the land. So for example, Say you and I have a really long history with an area that we've lived in all our lives, our parents have lived in all our lives, and we know one another in some way. When something starts happening in your territory, be it in Canada, America, in Europe, I'd be like, hey, I know that person, and they really take care of their land. I'm going to support them in standing up for the well-being of their land. If we all had that connection, we would recognize, hey, This is people taking care of land. There's somebody who's trying to stop that taking care of land. And that does impact me because everything's connected. But also, you know, by disconnecting people from the land, it creates that space, that society where people can steal, where people can lie, where people can rape and cause bodily harm to one another. And people now support that. People support the death of others because this this colonial society, this imperialistic society is one that condones so much violence and believes that the theft of land is justified. However, if all human beings were able to reconnect to land, we wouldn't want it stolen from another person. We would want things to be handled in a way that respects the land and respects people because those things are intertwined. What kinds of changes would you like to see from the Canadian government or from the settler society that would work towards supporting or at least getting out of the way of the language and cultural revitalization work that you do? For me, cultural reclamation really is building our connection to the land, but the language comes from the land too. So the way I teach this to people who grew up speaking English is I talk about onomatopoeia because a lot of old languages, words for different animals or bodies of water will actually be onomatopoeia-like. So the first Greek of significant to the Kusainage people is kuchachacha. And kuchachacha is the sound that we heard of that water. And I also talk about the frog. The frog's name is wachas. And wachas comes from the way my ancestors heard the croak of the frog. So what I usually ask people, I'm like, what is the sound a frog makes? And they say ribbit, 
Now, let's say what my people call the frog, wachas. I use that to show this is the sound of the land. This is the voice of the land is wachas here. So we need to be able to connect back to our land. That's why I teach outside. Everything makes so much more sense. Like I could teach you about the winds in a classroom, but if I bring you outside and we go outside and look in the direction of the different winds, it makes so much more sense. If I teach you about cha-cha-cha and the sound of it, it makes much more sense for you to be there at cha-cha-cha and me saying cha-cha-cha with cha-cha-cha right there. If I talk about talk, it's outside. Now, there's so many ravens around here in Skatenish territory, but if I'm saying, what bird makes the sound? And then I might even make more raven sounds. And then it makes so much more sense when there's a chance that you'll hear the raven, maybe not in that exact moment, although that's happened. You'll hear it within a few minutes and you'll be like, oh yeah, Tiffany, you just said and I just heard the raven and that's what it sounds like. So being able to be out on our land and being in culturally significant places And the reason the Canadian government can be a barrier to that is, first of all, of course, they've developed our land and some of these creeks or places that we had certain practices, they've developed on it, be it commercially or residentially. We can't speak to certain things anymore, but some things we really can. And then that really helps people understand like, oh, the people and the land are very resilient. We've done so much damage and yet there's something here. So these laws that keep us from connecting to our land is a hindrance to our language because language isn't just something you learn in the classroom. It's something that will make a lot more sense when you are out on the land. So the government can get out of the way by giving our land back, by repairing damages it's caused, by creating policies in line with the Indigenous ecosystems. So for example, Something that I think is really easy to implement is the highways or boulevards in cities, that those be places where instead of growing grass, that you grow indigenous flowers. Because when we develop the land, we're really taking it from the bees and we have to do so much work to give it back that there's a policy in place to grow indigenous plants and ideally indigenous plants only. If your municipality is within a certain ecosystem, It should reflect that anything you plant must be a part of that ecosystem. You know, if everyone starts growing palm trees and lemon trees because that's something you can grow because of climate change, well, you're taking away from young Indigenous Satanich minds from being able to learn and talk about the native plants and the medicines that we belong to for many, many generations. Instead of being able to talk about kofmeet, to talk about kofkiyas, and all these other plants that we've made medicine with, we'd have to start creating words for lemon and olive and apple. As I said, we've always adapted, but I think it's time for people to adapt to our way of seeing the world, to recognize that their way of seeing the world has caused tons of damage that if they keep going, it's just going to be irreversible. You have been listening to my interview with Tiffany Joseph about her culture and language revitalization work. To learn more about that work, go to tiffanyrevivalist.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. 
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.